Hi, it's Cammy Chris Kamara, and you are listening to the Trinity Heritage Podcast with Jamie and Lee Robinson. They are unbelievable. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening from wherever you're listening from. Welcome to episode 60 of the Wakefield Trinity Heritage Podcast, the only active Wakefield Trinity podcast worldwide. I am your co-host, Jamie Robinson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, my dad, Lee Robinson. How are we doing, Dad? Hello, and welcome to this week's uh, Heritage Podcast interview. Uh, this week's guest uh, is coming live from New Zealand. Uh, we're up early. It's a dull autumn morning over here in the UK, um, but uh, this fella's got up, uh, this fella's given us his time over the weekend. He's now more f- uh, quite famous for his non-rugby league career as well as his on-field career. Uh, we're lucky to have this gent as our captain back in 2006. This week, we welcome Monty Beetham. Monty, thanks for joining us, mate. Lee, Jamie, it, it's a pleasure. It's been a while and uh, trying to make it happen, but we got there in the end. I'm looking forward to uh, having a chat with uh, you great men. Excellent stuff. This is actually our penultimate podcast of the season, Monty, so it's a great honour to have you on. Um, how have you been this weekend? Yeah, very good. I'm getting excited about the Rugby League World Cup coming up. I, um, you know, I, um, I debuted with Tommy Littlewhite while he debuted uh, in a game that we played for the Kiwis against Australia in 2003. He also debuted for the Warriors um, all that, that, that long ago. Um, so um, to watch him play and captain the, the Kiwi side against the lead side that, uh, you know, they've, um, they've, re- they've finished the season off. Uh, they're, they're not at their absolute best, but uh, to see some of uh, the boys and Kiwi boys play for them and Bod- Bodine Thompson and then also Elijah Taylor coming over and having a run in, in different colours uh, to honour what is Thomas Ludoi. Um It's great to watch. I can't wait for the Rugby League World Cup. You boys are looking strong at the minute. I, I, how do you fancy your chances? Very strong. Um, for once, the side has been picked on form, and especially the middle third of the field, the, the Tarpane, um, you know, Moses Leota, uh, James Fisher-Harris, who didn't even play this weekend, uh, they're in fine form. So um, I'm liking it. It's fresh. We don't have a Sean Johnton as such, but when you've got uh, Dylan Brown and uh, and you've got Foz, which is uh, Karen Foran, who's sort of looking upon it from afar, and Jerome Hughes, who's become a household name. You know, about three or four years ago, he was a man that was... Uh, was it really known, um, even in Down Under, yet alone across the world globally? So um, liking the chances, but I'm also a tour Samoa man who played in the 2000 World Cup. So to know that they're opening the tournament against the English lads, uh, that's going to be a great game to, to start it all off with. And it's great as well, because, I mean, obviously in the, in the past couple of years, Tonga, uh, Samoa, Fiji to an extent as well, really kicked on and, and got some fantastic talent as well. Well, Fiji's been in the quarter and the semi-finals for the last two or three uh, World Cups. They beat uh, New Zealand down at home here um, in New Zealand. So, uh, look, wonderful talent. I think forty-five percent of the NRL are from Pacific um, heritage or background. So they're only going to get better. They're only get stronger. But I always keep an eye on the Super League and I always keep an eye on the players up there. And um, and I think they're underestimating the English lads because they can play. And uh, you know when they want to play. Uh, and they play at home, I, I know what type of uh, player you, you come up against. Talking about your time over here, Monty, well, we ask the first question to the same people every single time, and I'm going to ask you as well, mate. So what is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the words Wakefield Trinity? Uh, I think boys. I think boys in terms of the, the players that are over there. Uh, you know, I only played there for a year, that class of 2006. But uh, in terms of the feeling... 
and being close to that side with with just in you know a short period of time uh, because I was living there and I was seeing them each weekend because there's a lot of uh, foreign players throughout the side. There's a really good mix of Australians, uh, Kiwis, uh, English lads, and then also Oli, Olivia Alamar, you know, um, our, our Frenchman and so on. It was just a really good bunch of lads and boys, you know, from day one when I turned up and I felt really sorry and thinking it was dark and it was cold, um, even though he wasn't part of our team. He's a, a Wakefield legend and uh, Willie Poaching was there to greet me with a smile um, at the clubhouse and uh, I think that really was needed at that time because I'm a home boy. I spent my home time, uh, my whole life at home, never ventured out and uh, to be here on the other side of the world with my wife, um, high school sweetheart, was, was pretty crazy. But yeah, boys, uh, they're a great bunch of men. Good stuff, mate. I'm going to rewind to the 80s, if I may. You sound as though you had a fascinating childhood with your father being a professional boxer, but you weren't allowed to follow any footsteps initially, were you? No, that's right. Um, you know, you think of some of the greats in boxing, Alan Minter, um, you know, he was a world champion over there and that side of the world, very well known. And, uh, uh, you know, and uh, my dad fought him and my dad was a Commonwealth champion, uh, Australasian, South Pacific champion. But I think the Commonwealth title we held for a very long time in the middleweight division. So to to come from this side of the world, uh, very humble beginnings because he started in the Samoa to, to go over there and take on the world uh, globally was, was absolutely huge. And back then, you know, there wasn't so many belts or divisions or, or different titles or organisations. There, there were just a few. And, you know, I was very proud of his achievements and what he was able to do. But... You know, I wasn't allowed to box early, so they put me in, into karate because they're a little bit worried about, um, you know, seeing me go through that. My mother had to sit there and see my dad throughout his whole career, and uh, she found it too hard. So uh, that's why I was sort of steered off, at that, you know, early on at least. Yeah, well, you've took the next question from me, really, because uh, one of my boxing heroes when I was a kid was Alan Minter, boom, boom. And he obviously fought, he fought your dad at Wembley in 79. He beat him, but it was that sort of era, wasn't it? You know, after this, Minter went on and beat Vito Antifermo and then fought Hagler for the world title. So it was that era that your dad boxed in. Absolutely. What an era, um, especially in the middleweight division where my dad was. But Alan Minter, like, like absolute legend. I haven't seen much footage, a little bit of footage that are popping up. But just to sort of look back on, on some of my dad's um, photo albums and books and see who he fought against and the calibre of, of fighters like Alan Minter and to know that my dad has been there under the lights with him, to know that my dad was in camp with Muhammad Ali um, and Angelo Dundee uh, through the Miami period. I was almost born there. Uh, it just makes me feel very proud of of his achievements, especially coming from Samoa, from very humble beginnings, and you know, wanting to 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 aspire to be someone, and and that someone he was, and you know, I was very lucky early on in my life to to have a role model like that to uh, to try and aspire. But from a young age, you know, I was very naive. Uh, I thought if Dad could do it, I could do it because it's only Dad. Um, so on on one hand, it helped me. Uh, to think, you know, wow, I, I, I can be someone. So I used to always tell my dad, I want to do this, I want to do that. And his famous saying to me early on was, uh, son, don't tell me, show me. Ah, yeah. Excellent. What what took him to New Zealand? And how old was he when he sort of left Samoa into New Zealand? Yeah, I think he's a bit of a police officer. Um, but I think it was his aspirations of becoming a champion boxer and realising he really needed to do it from from out of New Zealand. And I think he had a couple of managers uh, that, that were looking to get him over. Uh, but, you know, even through that era here, when you're talking about uh, the era in boxing of uh, the middleweights, but even domestically uh, in New Zealand, they had a, a group of wonderful boxers and it was pretty much one of their number one sports, you know, rugby league, 
was at Carlo Park, but that's all Stanley Street, but that's also where they used to have all the boxing on the weekends, I'm told. And a lot of people, when I was growing up, uh, league people loved their boxing and uh, they all knew who I was because I had the same name yeah. as my father, Monte Beatham Senior. It was is your mum a Kiwi or is she a Samoan? Did 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 he meet her over the, over there? He did meet her over there. She was Kiwi born, but she went over there and was brought up there for a period of her life. So they both met over there in Samoa, um, and they sort of you know at a young age um, got engaged and uh, got married, and and they they ventured over. Excellent stuff, mate. We're um, a couple of uh, young young English lads. Um, tell us what it was like growing up in Auckland in the 80s. And you were born in 1978, March 78. Sounds a fascinating place, Auckland. We visited in our time, but it's a lovely place. So what was it like growing up there? I think it was a great place because I was out in South Auckland, uh, Mangere Bridge, uh, where David Tour and a lot of the uh, South Auckland heroes are from, you know, um, you know, they say it was a tough upbringing, um, but, you know, when I've been up there north of England, I know it gets pretty tough up there as well. Um, so I think you can relate to to the sort of upbringing that we've had. Um, uh, but but it, was a, it was a great time because, um, obviously, you know, when you're young and you didn't have that technology, you didn't have a lot of that stuff, you, you, you learned uh, to go out and play and negotiate and um, interact uh, the, the old school way. Um, you know, you'd go out. Uh, during the day, and you come home late at night when the when the lights um, came on because you knew it's time to get home, and there was no way of getting a hold of each other. Uh, there was no mobile phones. Uh, you couldn't even call through on the normal phone if you did have a normal phone. But you know, it, it was a good time. There was a lot of sport, a lot of sun, good weather, and um, a, a lot of time spent out in the streets and um, playing with you with your friends, uh, playing the games that you love. Um, sport was a huge thing back then. A lot of kids grew up watching sport. It, it doesn't seem to be the case now. What was your first bit of exposure to rugby league? I was actually a rugby man. I was a union man all the way through, and I was playing a little bit of uh, representative uh, union football. And then uh, a coach uh, that I played wanted to dabble, and is very successful in union, wanted to dabble in the, the game of rugby league. And he, um, he knew of me, and he said, oh, I want you to come over and play this other game. And to be honest, uh, from a young guy at school, uh, Rugby league was frowned upon, and I used to think it was the inferior game, uh, and I, I despised it. But until I played my first game of rugby league, I absolutely loved it. Um, it was, I think, it was it was because you could just get involved in the game. You, you could go looking for the ball, or you could uh, enjoy that contact, or you could have that collision because you actually felt like you played a game. And whether you played for a short amount of time, that seemed to be the way I, I was feeling. Um, you know that that. Uh, you know, I played rugby and um, you, you sometimes you'd play and you didn't even feel like you play a game. So I really enjoyed that, ga that game of rugby league um, until I, I went to charge down one of the conversions, which is something you can't do in the game of rugby league, which is a little bit funny or uh, humorous. But, uh, man, it, it was the game for me. I, I absolutely loved it, eh? Was, was there much opportunity to play rugby league? Like you say, you can imagine it's very rugby union heavy with, with the all-black involvement and everything. Yeah, it was because... Uh, Early when I was starting to play the, the game of rugby league, around their 15 years of age, 14 years of age, actually, the very next year, the 1993, they were having the Warriors talks and they knew the Warriors were coming in 1995 and there was a good man here in Do named John Acklin who's been a part of rugby league for a very long time. Uh, I think he played for the Kiwis, uh, one or two-time Kiwi, but a very good man. He was very responsible for bringing a lot of the talent through uh, Ali Lautiti, David Solomona, Stacey Jones, Owen Goodenbill. He, he just found them all, uh, Ruben Wiki, and, and he had a way. He was a wonderful coach. Um, so he signed me up to a Warriors scholarship at the age of 15 in 1993. 
Um, and then I knew what I was going to do. I put all my eggs into one basket and I was starting to sort of piece together how it would look to move on from school and to become a first grade player, which was new and it was early in those days too, because to think of it as a career path, um, we were the early adapters or adopters, you know, like in terms of, I was probably one of the first people to come through from a scholarship point of view through the grades into a full-time contract in the Warriors. The guys that came in 95, uh, they were there already. They were established first graders or, um, you know, they, they they had come to play first grade, um, whereas, you know, they hadn't come through the scholarships, hadn't come through under 17s, under 19s, and then into reserve grade and into the final series. So I was probably with the likes of David Solon Solomona and those types of boys, Ali Lautisi, Joe Ngalaval, were the guys, were the first ones to come through the system, although Dave didn't play uh, first grade for the Warriors, which is an absolute travesty. Some of the names you've mentioned there, even even there's still that small pool of talent, just a fantastic group of, of blokes, I imagine, as well, but some some fantastic players. Oh, mate, like, I, I was just thinking about it the other day. If I talk about um, my under-19 junior Kiwi side and... Reason why I was thinking about this is because the names that are synonymous with the Super League: uh, Leslie Vanikolo, Tony Pulitua, Ali Lawatiti, David Solomona, um, you know, uh, Joe Ngalaval, um, you know, Kylie Luluai, um, Frank Pulitua. There was a number of these players in that one side that played junior Kiwis uh, that were coming through that era, and and these are the guys that went on to star over there in the Super League and play very well. Um, you know, because it's a great competition that I still watch, and we know that there's a number of great Kiwis that go over there, and um, you know, and and just find a life there. Some never return. Um, your Fita Palacina, uh, who's still there, so many years later. Kyle Luai, when he left, and uh, David Solomon left, and you know, they're still still not home. They're living there. It's home for them. Definitely so, mate. So around this time period as well, you captain the Auckland and New Zealand schoolboys, and then onto the junior Kiwis as well. That must have been a great honour for you. I was huge because, you know, I was in the under-19 stage. I was one of three um, protected players in the Super League, um, and um, which means we were full-time. But we were in the Warriors under-19s, which were the minor premiers in the Malmaninka Cup. And then we also, uh, we we choked in the final, but I was part of the junior Kiwi side as well that um, drew the Test Series with the, with the Kangaroos. And, um, you know, it was... You know, I was training with the likes of Matthew Ridge and uh, Stephen Cooney and Stacey Jones and Tianama, all these heroes. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was really good for a 19-year-old boy because most guys are going out on the drink, having fun. And we'd still do that too, but it was in and around the great game of rugby league. I've just pulled up the uh, the team. Uh, do you remember your, your grand final in 97, the uh, under-19s? It's the only Super League uh, one going. Um, you play at Penrith. And I'm just looking, mm. you reeled off a lot of the names. You were captain at 5'8". You got Solomona in there. You got Kylie Lula in there. You got Ali Lawatiti in there. Do you remember the game? Do you remember the final? I do, because I got I, I got injured early on. I had a bit of a head knock, uh, which made it hard. But what happened was Reese Wester starred for them, and we won a Reese Wester, and we got off. they got off to a 16-point head start, and then we reeled our way back into the game, but it was a little bit too late. Um, we were the... The favourites going into that match, they really thought we were going to win it. But, um, you know, it was a little bit of choking versus, ah, oh, wish it never happened. But, you know, wonderful times because when we played under-19s then, we'd go over in the morning of the game sometimes, play the game, come home and be in the pub at that night um, celebrating a victory because you're young, you, you've got aspirations playing for the Warriors side and you're just winning. Uh, you know, you're winning and you're enjoying what you do. And, and you know, those those are those good days back then. I had a lot of hair on my head then, boys. 
<laughs> Good stuff. When we don't do this sort of stuff, Trinity Heritage and podcasts, we're a couple of physiotherapists by trade. So we're fascinated by injuries. Uh, and I read that you, in your early Warriors career, you tore your ACL and continued to play. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I... Well, early on, I didn't play. I didn't play first grade at that stage, but I was playing reserve grade um, with a torn ACL. Um, I was trying to get through. Frank Endicott was the coach. Um, he didn't really give a lot of us a shot. To myself, David Solomon, a few other boys in in, in that grade, but that, that was the thing. I had a choice of either um, having surgery, but then I would miss out on the rest of the year, and it was it was pretty early on in the year. Um, or you know, uh, try and rehab it and um, and do your best to play. And uh, in that stage, we're playing the provincial teams for the the New Zealand Warriors reserve grade side. I was the captain then, and we had some good players in around us, and I and I wanted to play, um, so I did that, and um, that's what happened. I played without a, a very long time, and until uh, Mark Graham came to the club, and then we played another game, and, and then it went again. Um, but that such as life, as you guys know, is is qualified physios, right? Like it, it's that moment that you relax um, is that moment that you you're not looking after. Um, the, that ligament or lack of ligament that is there and as a result that's when you you, you get that movement yeah good stuff mate March 1999 Monday night at uh, in Sydney mate your first grade debut what do you remember against that of that of your roosters against the roosters oh, oh look I remember quite a lot really as you do as you debut because when I was a kid growing up I always wanted to be Brad Fittler oh, at, wow. at lunch times you know, Fitler stepping off your left, Freddie. Um, he was an absolute hero, and I abs- and I loved him. And I was playing with the likes of Matthew Ridge and Stephen Kearney, Quinton Pongia, uh, all these guys against a very good Roosters side, Richie Barnett and Brad Fitler, and and a lot of other guys. Uh, but you know, as you do, um, there was something that happened early on in the game with Ali Lautiti and Brad Fitler. and then Brad came over and gave Ali a punch in the head. So <laughs> I ended up punching my my idol in the head as well. And then Scott Logan came in, and there was a bit of a a, a, a flurry, and then uh, we both got sent off the field. It was actually, I think, it was myself. Oh, it was actually, I didn't get sent off. They got me mistaken for Chief Tuma Barber. He got sent off, and Andrew Walker got sent off. Uh, but we, it was a great game. Monday night football, um, and the pace of the game was electric. Uh, Andrew Walker, um, you know, like Brad Fittler, it was it was amazing. But the, the other reason why it was amazing is too because um, you know you got to play against your 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 idol, but you also won. Uh, you know you won your first game, and uh, it was just unreal. Like you know, as a childhood, as a child thinking about that, you just just wouldn't even believe that you played against your idol in your debut match. You, you ended up punching him, and and then you win a game on a Monday night football. Um, you know at SFS, which is a great ground. Yeah, it was, you've answered my next question as well, because it, it says on the records, Brad Fittler, Ali Lawatiti got sent off, Andrew Walker, Tony uh, Tommy Bave got simbined. But I noticed your coach, Mark Graham, now he was one of um, my heroes. He came to Wakefield as well when I was physio there. So uh, and we've had him on the podcast this year. Tell us about Mark Graham, mate, and working for him. Absolute legend, eh? I mean, we all knew of him, and a lot of boys were in awe. with Joey Vangana and a lot of these other boys, and we're doing some podcasts ourselves, and they're talking about Mark Graham, and he's just intimidating. He's got a presence, a presence about himself, uh, a wonderful player. We all knew his history well, and even, you know, in your older age, you shrink a little bit. He was still a, a mountain of a man. Uh, he was a tough man, and I remember him with me early on because at that stage when I came off those... Um, those early years being a protected player, uh, Frank Endicott didn't want me at the club. 
and this is before I played a first grade game. And um, thankfully for me, um, when he said that I wouldn't be here next year if he was here, Frank wasn't part of the team the following year. It was Mark Graham that came in, so he was the coach. Um, so I survived for, for a little while longer, and my dreams and aspirations of playing first grade were still intact. Um, but, you know, like, remember Mark Graham saying to me, mate, look, you train like Tarzan, but I want to make sure you don't play like Jane. Um, so I want to I want to give you a contract, uh, but we've got to see how this next game goes. And um, and that in itself was funny because the game was absolutely crazy where I debuted and who I debuted for. But um, that's Mark Graham to a T. You know, he used to tell all these boys who've got, you know, Mercedes-Benz bodies, but they run like um, mini miners. Um, he, he was very hard man and he knew that he did the same thing in itself. So i never forget that with Mark Graham. Um, I just want to make sure you um, don't train like Tarzan and play like Jane. And, and thankfully, I didn't play like Jane, maybe a little bit better than Jane. And then I got a, a two-year contract underneath Mark Graham uh, to prove myself. Kind of at a young age, Monty, you were kind of surrounded by these, like you say, that your heroes and your icons and and just these legends of not just the sport, but in sport in general down under. How, how do you kind of process this as, as a young lad and, and not get too ahead of yourself sometimes? Oh, look, when, when I was a young man being around this, I was so grateful and I was very much like a sponge absorbing from all these absolute legends uh, who were legends at the time and then also went on to become even more legends, uh, even globally. Uh, but, you know, when you're not the most talented player, although I made every grade coming through and captained most of them and I was a, a dual and double international, um, you, I think that maturity is something that I had um, beyond my years. And, and that really helped, but I really enjoyed being in those moments and in those environments and, and learning, like you say, rubbing shoulders with these guys because it's <laughs> it's something at the time I never took for granted. But when you look back now in hindsight as an old man, you go, wow, um, every now and again, whether it be a, a chat like this that uh, brings back those memories or for whatever reason you come across these friendships that you had all those years ago in old boys' day and so on, you think, man, I was, I was pretty blessed and lucky. So... Uh, very lucky to be around some absolute legends uh, of the game that uh, you know that helped me early on build those foundations and and work on the leadership and work on on the professionalism that one would need to to have a long career even though it wasn't a long career because you know I had other uh, ambitions as well. Superb stuff, mate. And then fast forward a couple of years, you were made club captain in two thousand and two. And you know, being an Auckland boy, what what did that mean to you? It must have meant the world. Uh, that's all I, I dreamt of, Jamie. Um, it was amazing. It was particularly amazing because, um, you know, born and bred there, captain all the grades coming through. But 2001 was the first time the club had made the playoffs in history. And in that time, then you had Stacey Jones, you had Kevin Campion, who were the, the co-captains. So that final uh, day of 2001, when we had made the playoffs for the first time in the club's history, uh, Mick Watson, who was the CEO at the time, said, hey, mate, you're going to... Um, Come in here. Uh, I want you to be captain next year. And I thought he was joking. I said, well, I mean, you, we've just made the pass for the first time. I'm 23 years of age. We've got Kevin Campion and Stacey Jones, the club captains, and you want me to do it? I, I just left and left and walked out. The following year, he rang me up and said, mate, Daniel Anderson's going to give you a call tonight. Um, pretend that you don't know, but he's going to ask you to be the captain tomorrow. So sure enough, I hung up and Daniel Anderson uh, picked up the phone, uh, rang me up and said, mate, it's uh, Daniel Anderson here. I said, okay, mate, um, I want to see you tomorrow. And I was a very poor actor. I said, what, am I in trouble? He goes, no, far from it. Meet me at this uh, cafe. He brought me down to the cafe up the road down here in Remura. Um, and even though I knew it was coming, when he, when he 
asked me if I wanted to be the captain or he said that he wants me to be the captain for 2002. I was just elated. I was 23, about to turn 24, um, and the club was in some of the, the, the best years that we haven't experienced before. So pretty, it was pretty huge, man, born and bred, um, always had dreams and aspirations of it. Leadership appears to stand out throughout your career. Is, is this a trait you've always kind of had and, you know, you've taken on from your parents? Yeah, I don't know, because, like, my dad was a man of actions uh, rather than words, but when he did speak, it was the words that you you, you jumped on. Um, but I don't, I don't I know where the leadership came from, but, you know, like I said, from the age of 15, I was the uh, Auckland um, uh, captain, and then it's from that, um, going through, I pretty much captain every team I was, I was a part of um, all the way through under 17s, under 19s, junior Kiwis, um, you know, junior Warriors, reserve grades. And then, you know, that that um, moment of being told I was going to be captain, uh, which was the youngest ever Warriors captain at the time, and also I think the first Pacifica captain as well. It was just absolutely huge. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know why. Um I had those leadership qualities coming through, um, but you know I was never afraid of, of talking. I also understood uh, players' purpose, and I knew uh, what drove them. So when I spoke to them, I knew that when I wanted to pick up a particular player, um, I had to understand why or what made them tick. So that would actually, you know, pull the right strings. Um, but I just seemed to be around the, these guys and, and, and enjoy trying to bring the best out of them. So now, if I bring the best out of them. Uh, and challenge them, it would make me have to bring the best out of myself. But, you know, if I challenge them or bring the best out of them, because they're, they're quite handy players, then then our teams win. And I love being on those winning teams, especially early on, Matt. Excellent stuff. I mean, talk about winning. You know, your first full season as captain, you got to the grand final. You had a fantastic year that year. But unfortunately, you you didn't manage to get on the pitch. What, what, was, uh, what was happening around that time for you? Yeah, I played the first game, and uh, that's when Moz was playing for the, the Roosters. Uh, and I uh, met Moz for the first time, uh, Adrian Morley, and he was a fierce beast. Um, so we won that game. Uh, and then the following game against Newcastle, I did my um, my ACL. And it was my other ACL. It was my right side. And, um, man, it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. So that year... Um, I got back in time in a very short time to be available uh, to play um, in the grand final. I was 18th man, but I think it was something that I didn't really want to risk. You know, in that short space of time, I think it was five and a half months. Um, the graft was strong. It was a patella tendon graft. Um, they reckon six months was the least, but I was passing all the tests. Um, but I didn't play in the grand final. And I never, you know, I think about it now, and I never put pressure on any of the coaching staff or the CEO and say, hey, listen, I want to play this week or, or let me play this week. Um, maybe because I was selfless, but throughout that whole year, and I was talking to Mick Watson on a podcast that I do, which is uh, Once a Warrior with Monty Beatham, um, we were strategizing, we were pushing, we were doing all we could off the field to ensure that we're getting the best out of our players to be you know, in that grand final for the very, very first time. So that year, I think I played more test matches than I played NRL matches, uh, which, was, which was funny, but that's when we toured... Uh, uh, and played against Great Britain and some absolute legends in that Great Britain side that we played against as well. Excellent stuff, mate. So, talk about that test, talk about them tours, you know, playing, like you said, Adrian Morley, Paul Sculthorpe, Andy Farrell, oh. John Long. What was it like coming up against these guys who were based purely in Super League at the time, apart from Moss? So, did you know much about them? 
I was young. I didn't know how good they were, or you know, I didn't know how how many legends they had in that period in that one Great Britain side. Uh, you know, Lowe's and Cunningham. Uh, Cunningham, what a player he was. I mean, an absolute beast of a man at hooker. But you know, you you also on that tour, you had Jamie Jones, Buchanan. Um, you know, uh, you you had so many guys in that. Um, in the early team, you know, Rob Burrows, who's an absolute legend of a man. And, you know, um, I'm watching what's happening with him now, you know, and, and I'm just, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. But I remember Rob Burrows, it was myself and David Solomon playing against England A. Eh? Jamie Jones Buchanan and a few other boys were in there as well. And we were trying to trash talk him. We were trying to bash him. We were trying to do all we can. And Rob Burrows just didn't even care. He was just smiling. He was getting stuck in. And I was thinking, who is this kid? Like he was like half the size of us, um, but he was a wonderful talent. And um, we sure sure found out who he was a, a couple of years later or soon after that. Um, a, a wonderful young player, man. Um, you know, they, they, they had a very good side as well. I think they had uh, Chef Walker and they had a number of other sort of players that are playing in that team as well. So, I mean, we had a pretty young side too uh, that went over and played. But that tour was amazing because we played the midweek games as well. Like we played St. Helens. We started off with Hull, Hull, which was the last game at the Boulevard. Um, you know, it, it was it was absolutely unreal. It was an eight-week tour. We played three games against Great Britain. We drew the series. But you know, you had Anderson, you you know, you know, the names that you mentioned, Morley and uh Andy Farrell and uh, you know, Carney, and you had a lot of these guys that were playing uh that were just when you look back on it now, you just go, Wow, even the young guys coming through like Gilmore and that um Fielden. Uh, yeah, that's that was a wonderful pack. You know, I think Barry McDermott got me. Uh, uh, got me Brian McDermott. Brian McDermott. is it Brian? No, Barry. Barry. Oh, yeah. He got yeah, he got me good, man. He knocked me out in one of the test matches as well because Stephen Kinney and a few boys had to go home. But you know, uh, just just good men, good men that I keep in touch with now through social media, and and you just see them doing really well outside of the great game of rugby league, or even just still doing it as broadcasters. Yeah, good. So that, that was a good era for us because I'm just looking at again, looking at the teams of that era 2002. You mentioned a lot of them. Our pack, we had people like Terry O'Connor, Barry McDermott, Stuart Fielden, Jamie Peacock, Andy Farrell, Mike Forshaw, Kevin Sinfield, Paul Anderson. So we had some big boppers, but you you didn't have a bad side. You know, you, you came off the bench in the test matches and you had Jerry Seosio, Paul Rauhihi, Ruben Wickey, Stephen Kearney, Alan Guttenbeal. Another good era, wasn't it? Oh, it was, it was great. And but that's the thing. Stephen went home early. So I think I ended up starting, you know, a guy that was coming off the bench that played more test matches than NRL matches. And I ended up starting um that last year. So I think that's been bad. Barry got me too, got me with a good stiff arm. Um, but you know, they it was they were good games, mate. And um, you know, we got to play with the likes of Henry and Robbie. Um, and so once again, those were my heroes growing up and, and, and being able to play alongside them and seeing what they did in the Super League. Uh, they were very good times. Uh, they're Great Britain side. I mean, because now they don't always play Great Britain, right? I, you know, they, they, they normally play the English side. So uh, to play that Great Britain side and have those those talented players, Kerrick Cunningham, he was an absolute beast. Yeah, we often say that. We often dif- try and differentiate between the Great Britain and the England side. But back in those days, there, was, well, there wasn't many Welsh in that team. So that Great Britain team, apart from Kieran Cunningham, were majority of uh, English anyway. So we often didn't really... Uh, uh, differentiate between them um, but looking at this era uh, when I've looked at your career you seem to have played 5-8 hooker lock was that what was your favourite position and what did you prefer because you seem to be all over the place yeah it was all over the place um, 
it just it just depends because when I was playing for the Warriors, um, I was trying to be that lock forward, especially take over from Kevin Campion. But then when PJ Marsh got injured, I found myself in in that hockey and roll. But when you've got a four pack like that with Richard Villasanti and Jerry Siosio and 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 Apps Mark Tuki and guys, and they're going forward and they're playing really well. And you've got Ali up left, and you've got other um, boys of absolute talent, Sione Farmorino, and that. Playing hooker is a, is a great position because you have so much um, opportunity to be around the, the, these big men. Um, so I don't know if there was one favourite. I, I definitely wasn't a six, um, especially later on in life. I think that was earlier on because, you know, I was a very good talker uh, and I had really good players who could just move them around the field. Um, but uh, it was just, uh, you know, I was probably, yeah. I was more of a defensive player and a player that would just get the best out of other people in and around them. But um, you know, I just I just love to compete, uh, especially in those early years, and I think that's what really um, kept me um, at the top of my game or, or, or playing um, above where I probably should be. Good stuff, man. As your as your Warriors career uh, wound down, you seemed to be a little bit of a, a fiery character on the field, which led to a lot of criticism. Uh, did you fall out with the Warriors? Is that why you left? Is it fair to say? I left the club uh, with a year to go on my contract. Um, it, it was funny because, um, you know, and he's a wonderful man, Mick Watson. Um, he, he he was our CEO at the time, and he was really into the hard stuff. One, which was the Parramatta style of football, which was the, the great uh, shots and defence, the shoulders and the tackle being very brutal and physical. But two, was also being the enforcer type of players that he enjoyed. And through a period there in the, in the early 2000s, uh, when I got into that sort of position, um, you know, it worked. But then the game was changing. And then there was also some some fans from our side who, who, who weren't happy or weren't enjoying it. So uh, when when there was one game, I, I came out and I was copying a little bit on radio back here. And then also there was a section of the crowd that booed when my name got called. I thought, you know what, um, that may that may be it. Uh, it may be time to move on because you know when you when you grow up at a club and you put everything into a club uh, when uh, you're doing all you do off the field and at home and with the players and everything else you know it hurts. Um, but later on in life you realise that it's that that's fine. All you have to do is try and turn them around. But at that time, at that age, and with um, you know your family members sort of um, hearing it or copying it a little bit more, it, it was it was time to move on. So that's when I got on the phone to my mate David Solomon and said, "Dave, what's up? What's happening in England, man?" Superb stuff. I mean, just before we touch on Wakefield, mate, I mean, talk to us about the Warriors as a club in general, because, I mean, I, I say about 30 years maybe they've been going now. Um, two NRL grand finals, yet to win one. Playoffs maybe every couple of years. Do you, do you think it's a success? Do you think there's scope for another team in New Zealand? Well, I keep talking about another team in New Zealand, but when you don't haven't got the first team right, I don't know how you would go with the second team. Um, you know... Like, what's happening next year is great for the club because they've got the reserve grade, they've got the junior footballs, uh, you know, the Jersey fleet coming in as well. And if you think about 2002, 2011, um, 2011, you had three teams in the grand final from New Zealand Warriors. Um, So there was great talent uh, and they were coming through and you're building that culture. And everyone was aspiring to be that first grade player. 2002 and what we did 2003, um, that was huge because what that did was make someone like Sean Johnson decide to play rugby league over a rugby union. He saw Stacey Jones, he fell in love with the way they were playing and then he chose our game over the other game. 
Uh, and that's what you need to have. And I think that's what we're missing at the club at the moment. I mean, going through that pandemic in the last, you know, three years and what the boys had to put themselves through, no one will ever understand what that's like for three years. Um, you know, there was times when they left and they left for that game and uh, they were told that they weren't going home. And they're also told that they don't know when or if they will be able to go home for a very long period of time. Um, you know, when you're going to leave someone for a long period of time, when you leave them knowing that that's what's going to happen, it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but not knowing that you've, you know, you've, you've left them for the, I'll see you tomorrow, and you don't see them for another couple of months at least, uh, even longer, you know, six months to a year. It's just, it's just really hard. Um, but to answer your, to answer your question, I, I think this club has underperformed. Uh, I do think there's a lot of uh, our talent that is being uh, picked and, you know, picked and taken overseas. Plus, there's also a lot of uh, other great uh, codes that are playing and going well here down under as well. So basketball's another one. The fight arts uh, are picking up a lot of the talent as well. So it's not just all wanting to be Warriors or play rugby league now. I mean, just, just touching upon, I know it was a bit of a warm-up game last night, but you look at the starting 17 against Leeds, only one player from that 17 playing for the Warriors as well. So like you say about talent going to other clubs and being picked up before maybe even going to the Warriors. Bit, slight, slight bit of an issue, really, because you imagine the Warriors should maybe have the majority of that team, you think? Well, go back to 2003, um, and Thomas Lulawai debuted for the Kiwis that game, and we are playing North Harbour Stadium. It was the 100th test between New Zealand and um, Australia. We had 11 Warriors on in the Auckland, in the New Zealand side, and we had one Warrior in the in the Australian side, which was Richard Villasanti. So I think it was 11 or 12 um, Warriors involved in the Trans-Tasman test. Uh, and we won that one too. You know, we, we came back from behind and we beat Australia. Clinton Torpy scores three tries. Um, you know, it, it was a wonderful game. And then I look back at it now, we've only got one current Warrior, like you said, Dallin Martins Lesniak playing in that now. You know, we've got a few boys that are going to be Warriors next year. And, and you just think, wow, um, times have changed. And, and it's nice that you spread the talent around, but you want to you want to see more homegrown talent, especially when you're as biased and you're as one-eyed as me and you were born here and you just want this game to be successful uh, down under. So, um, you know, it, it's pretty tough. But like I said, with these young teams coming through next year, it's the best possible chance of, of trying to get their talent and keep their talent here. As well as being a Wakefield fan, Monty, I'm a West Tigers fan in the NRL, so we won't talk too much about that. But... As you can imagine, growing up, I'm 30 soon, so my era was pretty much all Benji Marshall. Oh. Tell us briefly about what he did for the game and, and for New Zealand Rugby League as well. Oh, he's an absolute freak. But if you think about that 2005 uh, West Tigers side, which I played against as well, they were just they were just freakish himself and, you know, Scotty Prince and uh, my good friend Paulie Fatawira, who played for them as well, and he picked up a title. Um, they're amazing. But, you know, it's... Not just what I know about Benji, it's what every other player, um, you know, even past his, his playing days now, keep referring to him and how he changed the game. He changed the game. And even what he does post that now, and he was on the Celebrity Apprentice Down Under, and he does stuff on TV, very articulate, and the way he breaks it down. And he's also, you know, um, once again, he changed the way the game is played. He's also changed the way and how you coach, because he's already got a head coaching job in, in, in a couple of years. Uh, and once again, only Benji Marshall can do that because of who he is and his IP and the legendary status that he's got. Because you, you just don't get that. You don't get, okay, um, you haven't really done any of your coaching tickets, but you know what? 
I'm going to give you a head tight, you know, full-time role in, in two years. Uh, and only you can do that if you're Benji Marshall. But a wonderful talent. He's loved and respected down here, um, not just here in New Zealand, but um, definitely so in Australia because he's just, um, you know, an, an absolute legend. We use that term too loosely, but um, everyone holds him with that criteria in mind. Excellent stuff. It's good to hear that he's, he's still a good bloke and, and he, everything he seems to be as well. So it's, it's great to hear that. Yeah, man. <laughs> So then, once again, back back to the present day, you, you rang your mate, David Salomona, and suddenly you were at Bellevue and at Wakefield, mate. What 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 brought that on? What did you think of the city when you arrived, and, and Bellevue specifically? Man, I'll be honest, hey, I was in tears. I was <laughs> in tears because it was dark, it was cold, and I was thinking, what have I done? I'm a, that's because I'm a homeboy. That's because I'm a homeboy. I went to the clubhouse, and I was like, oh, man, and I was, what have I done? I remember saying that to my wife, but then Willie Pochin came over. How you going, Mods? And I got a smile on my face. And then soon after, Jason Dimitri came over. Uh, and then I met Obstie and then I met all these other people. And I just think, you know what? These are wonderful people. Uh, and the boys try to make me feel at home. Uh, and then the fans, they were absolutely amazing. I mean, we were used to a very big uh, headquarters or facility or, 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 or stadium. Bellevue wasn't like that. But you know what? When, when they packed Bellevue, it was absolutely amazing. But early on, it was cold. Um, it was wet, um, but you know what? It was it was warm in terms of everyone being so welcoming. Um, it was uh, the first is when I arrived, I believe. Uh, so I went on New Year's Eve um, of this over here in New Zealand, and I got over there as the first. Um, but you know, we got in the club car and we're driving around and, and having a look. But it was still exciting times when I got over being sick um, because it was all new, it was all fresh, and it was an opportunity to help a club that I knew loved the great game because I knew how David Soul spoke about them for a very long period of time. And when I knew I was coming there, I was trying to see the squad and I was trying to look at the history and what they've done previously. And I knew they had uh, been in trouble with relegation and I knew some of the players. And I played against Casper when uh, he was playing for Hull um, back in 2002. So I had conversations with him as well throughout the whole that whole period. So um, they were exciting times, mate. And, um, you know, and even though I was there for a year, um, you know, there's some very fond memories of, of what went on. <laughs> I'd heard when you arrived on New Year's Day, you were virtually on the way out the door again because you couldn't get your central heating to work in the house. Oh, yeah, it was a bit like that, man. But, of course, who was there? And I kept mentioning his name. Willie Pochang was there, and he, and he was there to help me out and, and everything else. So he warmed me up with that love and support and, and that comfort, knowing that he was there only a phone call away. But but then also that, because I remember I went to a training session as well. I think it was Pinefields or it was at that school or somewhere. And, uh, mate, I didn't even have the right gear, and it was, and it was like minus three, and it was just freezing. Um, but, you know, once you got involved and, and, and you got playing um, or, or training and, you know, you got big Michael Corkidis running at you and everyone else, um, and you're trying, to, you're trying to make a good impression as well because you don't want to be that guy that's coming from overseas and you're a dad, right? So you, you want to put your best foot forward. You want to make sure that you're imparting your wisdom or, or, or just trying to earn the respect um, of the team, and I know we had a we had a, a fitness test early on, and um, and I made sure I I won that uh, um, because um, I had to you know to try and get the uh, the respect of the players there as well because that's one thing you got to do early on. You weren't here very long, and you were named captain again. Again, that that sort of leadership tag followed you around. Did you find it a little bit more difficult coaching uh, captain in Wakefield in Super League than an NRL team? No, no, I loved it. Um, there were some really good leaders within the squad. Um, Jason Dimitriou in particular, um, he was the captain. 
what a fine man he is and what a fine captain. And, you know, to have these sort of guys that are lieutenants that are helping you out that um, were never bitter, like even uh, JD was not bitter once um, and you'd never know it. He was always up. He was always that guy that was um, larger than life, trying to get all the, the guys motivated and going. David Solomon was a fine leader. Um, he had really come on in the leadership over the years. You know, I've known him from under 17s to, to I think we're back, you know, we're in our late 20s then. Um, so it was pretty crazy, crazy times. Ben Jeffries was good. You had Marchie there, David Marchie. You had a number number of leaders, even little Obsti, we used to call him Wee Man. Um, <laughs> um, there was there was some, some, some very good boys in and amongst it. And it seemed to be a team that was quite flat. There was no real hierarchy. Um, everyone had their their moments to say what they wanted to say, and everyone would respond the right way. Um, you know, you know. But yeah, it was it was a team that I really enjoyed. Um, you know, probably because I spent more time with them being an overseas player and not being able to just go home and stay at home with with your family and mates as you do back here at the Warriors, perhaps. Do you remember your debut? It was um, Bradford Bulls at home. Nine thousand turned up. The nine thousand is phenomenal for Bellevue. I, I, I would never forget that because I knew they were the champions. I knew how good they were and I knew how many good players they had in their team. They had field and they had some of my good mates in there too, Joe Bangana and um, Leslie Vainikolo and Shantane Harpe. I remember giving Shantane a bit of a kiss when I tackled him on one <laughs> of the games. Um, you know, that was a close game. We 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 probably should have won that game. Um, I think we lost by one try in the end. Um, but you know that was the, the the first time that we got to play at home, and the crowd were amazing. You know, for nine thousand people, and I know that you know they brought their own players, but I'm sure we drowned them out in terms of our singing and what we could do. And and, and that's the thing, you know, nine thousand at Bellevue, and and what they'd do, and when they would chant, when they would sing, and and how they would pick you up was was awesome. And they were close to you on the ground, right? So that's where that the energy the atmosphere was there. But to play the champions first off. Um, that was that was pretty exciting and, and what a way to debut because I've been thinking about that for a very long time going, oh, okay, well, you know, you're playing the big boys first up, so you've you got to go well. We found uh, 2006 a little frustrating because we, we we only won one in our first eight. Then we, we turned Wigan over by 40. Um, I don't even remember. We, we led Warrington 21-0 and lost. Oh, we we can't, led 20-0 and lost. I can't forget those two matches because, like, I... <laughs> I've said that myself when I've been watching games of late, when I've seen people give away leads and I'm going, you absolute spastics. And then I remember back to that one, and in particular the Huddersfield game. The Huddersfield game seemed to hurt more than anything else because it was a game that, you know, that, you know, obviously that 20-point lead. And oh, I just remember leaving that and jumping in, uh, on the bus. I think we had a bus in and we're just, we're just so heartbroken and down because, you know, you could just – feel the capitulation because it was even Warrington as well. Hey, like you mentioned the Warrington one and, and how that slowly came and we knew we had the people singing in the crowd and it was heartbreaking, not only for us, but for, for them because we knew we had let them down. Um, but, you know, when it slips out of your grasp like that and you can't do a hell of a lot to bring it back, um, it's, it's, it's demoralising. It, it really was. And that was some of the games um, that, and that's the way it is, you know, like, Came with two halves, or you'd get up and you'd do wonderfully, but then you let that lead slip. You know, twenty points—that's that's hugely um, embarrassing. When we announced that you're coming on the podcast, Monty, on, on our social media platforms, we had a lot of questions come to us to ask you in terms of fan responses. But the majority were about 
your red card for, for punching Ryan McGoldrick against Casper in our 18 0 oh. win. <laughs> Luckily, we still won the game with 11 men. But what, what do you remember about, about that time period and that day? That's all I was thinking about Outback, realizing that I'd gone off the field, knowing how important that game was uh, for us in the scheme of things. No, because, like, you know, um, I can tell you now the likes of JD, um, through John Keir, David Tolomona, uh, Simitad, all of us, we spent so many long days and hours talking about how important it was for us to stay up to win because we knew how much the fans loved it and we knew how important it was to the club. Um, I don't think I've played an even more, any more important game than that million pound match because of what was on the line. And the thought that if we went down now, they may never come back up again. Uh, and, you know, we had moments and days where we just strategized and we got to try to motivate each other and get people up for it. So to think in that situation then that I had blown it, um, for for this club, for this this you know, this religion that is all about Wakefield, I was just I was distraught. I had my phone with me. I was trying to find the score. Um, I just was so thankful that um, that it was fine, and and that we you know we got on a good run uh, to go in and stay up because I mean I was only there for a short time, um, but Wakefield has left a huge spot in my heart and um, how. The, the people there support the great game. They support the club and the, the, the history of the club. Don Fox, uh, you know, and, and 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 all those guys that have come before and and you know, one time absolute um, star-studded teams that would just dominate. Um, so you know, you know, one day I think Wakefield will get there again because um, they need to, they deserve to, because the fans are just being so loyal and, and, and loving. And you mentioned it there, mate. The million pound game, the Judgment Day game, eleven thousand fans at Bellevue when. I'm sure Dad, Dad can really off the back, off the top of his head, but probably the biggest crowd we've had there in the last maybe 30 years, Dad, even longer. What a long time, 40 years. 1975 was the last time we had anything like that, that crowd. Wow. Yeah, so um, I, I, don't, I know you've listened to a couple of podcasts in the past months, but we always do a bit of a quiz. Um, we always quiz. Um, <laughs> for, for anybody listening, Monty's face has just dropped actually with that without saying that. But we'll always try and quiz um our guests on certain lineups that they played in. And Dad's got the lineup now, he's gonna he's gonna quiz you, and you've got to try and name that starting 13 from that judgment day game. Oh, no way. Well, we always I'll, I'll give you some hints if you're a bit stuck so we don't have a broken time. Okay. But with this goes down in our history, out of the 17 players, only two were English. As you go back to those Warriors conversation we've had about homegrown talent, so seventeen mm. players, two English, fifteen overseas. I could never okay. believe that when I looked into it. Yeah, well, the two, two only two English, two English, yeah, two English. So we'll get to those fullback, mate. Who do you think your fullback was in that season? Well, well, it just depends because I remember, I remember, I remember who our main fullback was for the majority of the year. But then that changed up a little bit too because you had Paul White come in and do um, bits and pieces. But normally it was Colin Halpenny who used to be our man. Yeah, he was fullback. Good stuff. Um, wingers. So Semi Tads would be one. Yeah, and then and maybe it was Whitey Paul White on the on the on the on the wing potentially. No, this was a change. Whitey didn't play. JD was on the wing. He played centre all year. Oh long. yes, and yep, JD yep. on the wing. Because James Jimmy Evans was uh was a uh, centre. That's right. And so oh, Hendo would have been the other centre. Exactly. Yeah, James Evans, Kevin Henderson, the centres, wingers, Jason Dimitriou, Semi Tadalala, 
Who's your halfback? Yeah. Uh, would have been uh, Obstie. Or was it Jamie, would you, J- Jamie Rooney? Obviously, would have come off the bench. It would have Jamie Rooney and BJ. Excellent. Exactly. So Jamie Rooney was one of our English. BJ was scrum half. You've said Obsty. Obsty was hooker. Who were your big bopper props? Oh, Kukiris and uh, well, was it was it Fre- uh, uh, Adam Martinez playing or was it was it uh, yeah it was Adam and then it was uh, Big Daryl off the bench. Uh, yeah, Daryl wasn't there. Yeah, it was Adam Wittin, Michael Corkides, but there was no Griffin, yeah. so he wasn't around. Or whether he was injured, yeah, Fieldy, Fieldy was there, and Sol was uh, Fieldy starting. Sol, Sol was in the second row. Fieldy wasn't around. So some of these English guys you were mentioning, they must have been injured because they weren't part of the English oh. the setup. So your second rows, David Solomon was one. Oh, and Ollie, he was on the bench. Ollie. Okay, so Dave Sol would have been one. He would have been playing on the left. So who was on the right then? Another Aussie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I know who he is. He, he played for Selfs in that as well. He played a little bit in Aussie. Duncan. Duncan. That's him. Duncan. He was a good player. Great player. Great player. He was a great player. So they were your, they were your second row, David Solomona. Duncan McGillery, you were you were loose forward at lock thirteen, uh, and then your subs mm. you've already mentioned Oliver Alima. You had three other subs: one English, one Australian, one Tongan. Oh, you had Marchi in there. Marchi, he was off the bench fourteen. Yeah, yeah, and then you would have had um. Well, then why would you have um the Tongan? It wasn't another um. It wasn't Tavita, was he? It was Tavita, yeah. Oh, you're having two um two um hookers on the bench. Two hookers on the bench, yeah. Yeah. And then what have I, what have I got left? Um a, 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 an Australian forward, uh, the the last sub. Australian forward last sub. I'm just trying to think about the fours in the head. Play for the uh, Oh well no, I thought I thought I said Corky. No, he's he was ten, but you've got another one. Play for the roosters. Oh, Nick Kennett. Nick Carey, that then? Yeah, so that's your bench. David March, Oliver Alima, Ned Katic, Tavita Latu. Excellent. Well done. Yeah. Put on there. Oh, no, it wasn't for your dad, Lee. You looked after me, Lee. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> What's your memories? It's funny what you remember, what you don't remember, eh? What's your memories of the week, mate, leading up to that? Because obviously, I don't know whether you decided to go home by then, but there are a lot of people on edge, weren't there? Because they could have lost the jobs if we hadn't beaten Cast that night. Oh, mate, there was. Like I said, there's no more important game that I played in my career because in those other games, and we hear people say it's just a game, that wasn't just the game. Like in the other games, you could go come again next year and you could have another shot. If you didn't make the playoffs, you could come again next year and then have another shot. But for that one, for some reason, we all throughout that whole last you know six weeks, especially that week coming into it, JD, all of us, we had many conversations in and around the points of that match. That why, that's why after the game on the field when we left, uh, or even when we were on the field for a very long time, it was just it was just jubilation. And then the eleven thousand seemed to be all on the field when we were celebrating, mm-hmm. and then we celebrated uh, long and hard into the night as well. Um, the the feeling of the importance of the outcome. Um, that probably stuck with me more than anything else. Like, I, I, I wasn't too. Sh- I was probably ninety percent sure that I was going to come back. But that, that was. You, you didn't want to be that person to 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 let the team go down. 
Yeah. You never want to be that guy. And that was on our watch. And we said that many times. We said, this is, we are the people that are doing this. This is a very proud club. This is a club that loves their game of rugby league. They supported us, supported this team for a very long time. There's absolute legends out there. Uh, Neil Fox, um, who, who, who's, who's paid, and other guys that we've been making mention us. We, we can't do this. We just can't go down. Uh, and to have that run and, and to play and to, to feel, first of all, firstly, after that game, it was just a sense of relief and you're just sitting down, just exhausted because you just put so much into it. You know, you're playing against Danny Lutley and his guys and Danny was going hard and we were going hard. And, and first and foremost, you were drained because it all caught up with you in that moment that it was like, phew, uh, we've done this. Uh, we, we, we've done what we wanted to do. We've done what we've needed to do. It's not just want to do, it's what we've needed to do. We had a sense of, of obligation to keep this club up. Um, so then after that, then we had a bit more like, woo, and then we started celebrating, then we started enjoying uh, the team and, and the company and, and what we were able to achieve. Um, but it was a very important game, probably one of the most important, probably the most important game in my career that I played. And, and it was funny that it was a promotion relegation game, um, but, you know, nothing more important. Happy days, mate. Stressful days, but happy days. <laughs> just a couple of, just uh, two questions wrapped into one here. Um, you left early. When did you decide you were going home? And did did you did you leave to become a boxer, or did you go home and then boxing found you at home? Uh I, man, I. What happened was early on before I even played a game for Wakefield. Uh, David Solomona, we're at, we're at the the gym, and there was a, a a boxer there, and David was saying, "My mate will give you a hiding." My mate will deal to you, and he was talking about me, and he was doing this in front of everyone. Uh, I know his first name was Mark. He was a middleweight boxer. Uh, he was a young man, and then Sol just kept carrying on. So that guy came over to me in front of everyone. And goes, "Oh, mate, uh, can you box? Can you?" I said, "Oh, look, I, look, I'm all right. I, you know, do you want to do some sparring?" And I said, "Yeah, I can help you out. I can come and do some sparring." And I haven't even played a game for the club at that stage. Uh, and then we went down to do a bit of sparring with him, and it was his uh, manager at the time saying, "Mate, you, you've." You've missed your calling. You're boxing. You should be in boxing. Let's, let's talk about boxing. Well, let's go to Frank Warren. Let's do that. And I said, hey, mate, I'm here to play rugby league. I haven't even played a game yet, and I can't even be thinking of this. But, you know, it's something that I always flirted with and it's something I always liked and enjoyed. And then uh, throughout the year, I was having some conversations with my former uh, CEO of the Warriors, and and I was really homesick above anything. Um, I loved my time there, and I loved the boys, and I loved the fans and, and playing for the team. But... I don't know what it was. It was just homesick. So the thought of going home and then even potentially boxing, I think those two together just really um, stuck in my mind. Um, and then when I went back, um, I was on a, a celebrity treasure island um, and I was there for 21 days where you were sleep deprived, food deprived. My son was in my in my wife's tummy. <laughs> and I was having some real long conversations and thoughts about uh, what I wanted to do. Did I want to go back um, or, or was I going to do boxing? Um, and that's where I came to the conclusion. Um, although I thought I wasn't going to come back, but when I left, um, I really did. Because uh, my wife didn't want me to box. She didn't want me to play. She wanted to be in Wakefield. She's, to this day, she still says that maybe we should have been playing there uh, over there and, and playing rugby league. So there was a lot on my mind and a lot I had to deal with. Um, and then it was when I came back from then uh, and against her will, um, I said, look, I... I'm not going to go back and I'm, I'm going to box. And man, there was some quiet times at home because she was not happy. Um, you just dropped that in as well, mate. Celebrity Treasure Island. 
Oh yeah, look, mate, I did Dancing with the Stars as well. Um, I did I did that all back home in New Zealand. Uh, you know, when you're when you're a Warriors captain there for for a long time, you you do that type of stuff. I was on there with uh, Wendell Sailor, um, <laughs> Rebecca Luce. She was on Celebrity Treasure Island there as well. Um, she was uh, uh, the nanny of Dave Beckham. Um, you know, some 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 good people on that. Wendell Sailor was an absolute hoot on, on the show, um, and some All Blacks and some other people as well. So, but on that time, like I said, I was there for twenty one days, almost to, to the end. Um, sleep deprived, food deprived, um, many conversations with yourself. You think about what you want to do, um, and and then that's that's where I came up with that. But um, I've always got a soft spot for the club. That is Wakey, man. Wake Wakey till I die, man. Um. And tell us about your boxing career, mate, in the end. Eight, uh, sorry, nine professional fights, eight wins. You won the Samoan and New Zealand Cruiserweight Championships. Do you, do you, I always think, do you get to keep them titles afterwards? Or do you, yeah, you, you do. You, you, well, you don't keep the titles, but you keep the bouts, and then uh, the titles move on. Uh, but I, I had to give up. I had, I had bigger plans in boxing, but um, when I won my New Zealand title, I was going to defend that, and I was going to fight for uh, a regional title. And what happened was um, we just finished sparring and um, I had two different guys. You're sparring one guy at a time and you get another fresh guy in. And and that was great. The last sort of 30 seconds of the last round, put my hands down and we're just swinging back and forward. And I really enjoyed it. And I thanked the boys and I went home, went to training the next day and I wasn't quite right because I was in, intact with my body and what's happening. Um, just felt, you know, a bit sensitive up top when I hit the bag. Spoke to my old Warriors doctor and... Um, I went and had a concussion test straight away, passed that with flying colours, um, did some other tests and that was fine. But progressively over the next little week, I got tighter through my um, hamstrings and then in my glutes and then in my lower back and then I, I couldn't even move. I was like crippled and I, I couldn't do a lot. And what that was, was a, it was a brain bleed from that spar and the blood trickled down my spine and it pulled in my lumbar. And because I was pulling in my lumbar, that's what... Um, you know, debilitates you and that's what gets you in that situation when you can't move. So then I got rushed in for an MRI and it was a brain bleed and and then um, the rest was history. So at that stage when I was telling my wife for a very long time that I wouldn't get hurt in the boxing and I'd do the right thing and safety measures and precautions, at that time I could no longer look at her and say, hey, listen, uh, I'm not going to get hurt. Because uh, my wife didn't even want me hurting anyone else. Um, that's just the way it is. So uh, that was it. That was the end of boxing. Jeez. Oh, and... Thinking about obviously injuries playing rugby league, injuries playing boxing, fighting boxing and stuff. But you, 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 one of your first fights was fighting in your dad's hometown in Samoa. How much did that mean to you? And, and going back right to the roots of where it started for, for your dad as well. Yeah, that was huge, man. That was huge because uh, it was huge for a number of reasons. A lot of uh, expectations and pressure on me because um, I'm Monty Beatham's son. And you're never going to be good enough because Monty Beatham was a, a true um, hero um, and legend of the sport there. But, you know, to come out and you had the the Samoan flag draped around you, you had family and friends that flew over and you were there ringside and you had, um, you know, aspirations of what did you what you wanted to be. And it was also part of the reason why you gave up your, your other love, your first love, which was uh, rugby league. It was huge, but it was a great time. That the country sort of stopped for that moment, and um, it was a lot of fun, man. And um, it was good too because you know that was uh, you know the first time that my dad and I made that walk. We had um, you know we had difficult upbringing, and it wasn't always eye to eye. But um, you know later on in life, that all changed, and to have him in my corner in his hometown, I think for him and seeing his eyes when uh, just before I walked out and seeing how he felt and his pride. Um, you know, I felt I did the right thing from from a son's point of view to to honour him 
uh, in the sport at his hometown or, you know, and from Samoa, which is beautiful, you know, and, and back then as well, um, you know, it wasn't until years later that I claimed it, but um, we went and saw the, the head of state uh, back then and he both gave us some um, Thai titles. Um, so that was, that, was, that, was, that was pretty pretty amazing. It was a wonderful trip all around. Excellent stuff, mate. Uh, just, I'm just, uh, I love a good foundation. I love, I love foundation stories, <clears throat> and your foundation, Steps for Life, sounded fascinating when you set it up with your sister in 2009. Are you still involved? And how did that come about? Yeah, it's it's stopped now through the pandemic, unfortunately. But you know, as a kid growing up, you know, I was potentially on my way to youth obesity. I was uh, an overweight young man, um, very young. Um, maybe it was puppy fat, maybe it wasn't. But if I went down that path, that maybe continued on and my parents got me into karate uh, and I lost a lot of weight and um, got very disciplined. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I always used to think about, uh, you know, like what I was able to achieve in life uh, thanks to my vehicle, my only vehicle, uh, which was my body, uh, you know, play rugby league, uh, do karate, do some boxing, uh, go around the world and, and experience that through, um, through you know, the vehicle that I have, which is my body and those opportunities. And then I think about uh, the kids and where they're at and um, how a lot of them growing up do it really tough because of the side effects of, of being obese and, and overweight and obviously mental health and that all comes into it as well. So when I... When I uh, saw some stats early on, when I was reading um, the paper online, I, I saw that New Zealand was uh, ranked third in the OECD for uh, obesity. I rang my sister straight away and I said, I, I found my calling. And, and then I hung up because I was so excited. And I said, oh, sorry, I rang it back. And I said, that's to, to do this. And, and I need your help because she's a, it's a very bright lady. And um, what happened was uh, we had a foundation that was set up for youth obesity. And uh, we did that for a little over 10 years. Um, and we made some wonderful difference out there and uh, people changed their lives and, uh, and um, you know, some of those have gone on to, to help other, impact other lives out there as well. Good stuff, mate. Yeah, you touched on this as well. Like you touched on Dancing with the Stars. That's the equivalent show we call it Strictly Come Dancing over here. Uh, it's massive. So tell us about that, mate, because I understand you came second in the whole uh, show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, um, it was an experience, um, you know, because obviously... What did we have? We have, I think it was about four and a half million, uh, four million people in the country population. I think there was a million that tuned in for the final. So it gives you an understanding of how big it is here. I know it's huge over there, but it, it's slightly different. And we had a number of um, celebrities that were on the show. And um, uh, I think it was back in 2007. Uh, but coming second was was great. But there were some moments there where we were pretty scary because the show was live. And I remember... Um, you know, they said, Monty and Nerida, you're on in, in, in one minute. Uh, and every time that comes on, I'd go out the back and I'd just run through my paces and, and, and walk through them. And this time I'd gone out and um, I couldn't walk through them. And uh, I normally go back to Nerida and Nerida goes, what's up? Um, I said, I, I don't know. And she goes, what do you mean you don't know? Which part don't you know? And I said, no, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know where to start. I had, uh, it was just a memory blank. And then she was starting to get panicked and she was starting to worry. And, um, and she was starting to get me even worse. And 30 seconds, Monty, you're on in 30 seconds. And then 10 second countdown, then your aunts go around through the backs, come down through the stage. And I said, so look, just don't worry about it. I'll be fine. Because she was she was getting really bad. And we're walking down. It was Craig Revel Horwood, who was the judge that was in Strictly Dancing as well. 
after the, the, the dance, which was a foxtrot, he said to me, you look as scared as a two-year-old when you're walking down that stage. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell him at the time, uh, post the show, because once we did the actual dance, um, it was fine. When I was walking down the stairs, I, I was holding my dance partner's hand. I was walking down, not knowing why, what the first step was going to be or if anything was going to come out at all. That's why I looked as scared as a two-year-old. And this was live on TV, uh, probably about, 700 odd thousand people watching as well so um thankfully muscle memory kicked in you work pretty hard and as a result it was you know it was a pretty decent dance um but yeah i mean scary moment eh, on, on on uh live tv uh, across the nation <laughs> wonderful so how did how did the move come from sportsman to television star was there a big break have you got a good agent and how did the what what was the sort of the big break the start of that journey yeah, I was, I was doing a little bit when I before I came over to Wakefield, regardless, um, because as you do when you've got a little bit of profile, you do a bit um, with the sport, and I was doing a little bit of that for Sky TV, and, and then I came home and you know being a former Warriors captain uh, and playing for the Kiwis, and that there were some moments with Sky that I was being able to to come in and help out as um, some sideline stuff or some of the, the expert panel situations and that, which was which was great. But I, I think for me, the, the big one was when they asked me to go to the Olympic Games as a broadcaster for the Olympic Games for Sky TV. And I found myself covering um, equestrian and, um, and all sorts of other sports, which was just absolutely amazing. 2016 in Rio, spent, you know, three to four weeks over there covering sports. Um, and I always felt that I was flying the flag for the rugby league people because uh, I was the, the broadcaster that went there. That was from the rugby league side, so that was amazing. But since then, you know, like this year on Sky TV, I pitched the concept to them, which was Once a Warrior, and we get to speak to absolute legends that have played for the club. We have 30 episodes. You can catch it on um, YouTube as well, you know, from Dean Bell to Tia Ropati to, um, you know, to Stephen Kearney to Simon Mannering, um, absolute legends of the game that have done really well. Um, and, you know, you talk to them in, in a way, you give insight, and there's stories there that have been untold, Um and, and you refer to that in a, in a really relaxed manner, which has been huge for, for Sky this year. So um, I've just, I just really enjoyed being able to talk about that. And I was there for Joseph Parker's um, time when he won the belt. Um, I knew Joe at school and I helped him um, come through um, as a youngster. I took him under my wing um, after school and helped him network in that as well. Uh, he was come to some of our golf days for our charity event. So to be a part of the boxing and to him to win the world title then, to be at the Olympic Games, to be able to, to talk about rugby league and pitch your own shows and to do that, it's um, it's privileged work at times, man. It is, mate. Well, you've taken you've taken the next question again. Um, I was going to ask you about once a warrior because I find that fascinating because we sort of based you, you say you've done thirty. We we based ours our podcast on a similar scenario really. We're on number number sixty now with about forty interviews behind the scenes, untold stories. I think that's brilliant, mate. What you do for once a warrior. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And, and I think the great thing about it, and I mean, you guys, imagine if you had the opportunity to um, have footage attached to the stories mm -hmm. or to have footage attached to it. It just really helps with the nostalgia uh, behind it. So the stories is one thing. And when you bring up the names is another thing. But then when you've got the footage to back it up, uh, some of the footage that has been unseen, um, it really does add for some compelling viewing. And, um, I, you know, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and that's come through well. And the way and the manner in which you ask the questions and have the conversations, um, it's disarming. So people come and they, they bring you gold. So that's what I've been able to do. Unfortunately, it's only a half an hour show with um, my show, but uh, it's it's been absolutely great. And 
by all accounts, they want to do it again next year because there's still some absolute legends to come on the show and, and tell their story. So I feel very privileged to, to, to you know, get these legends in the spotlight again and tell those stories. And also to sometimes when the club's not going so well, remind the fans of why they become a fan, of why they love the club, that one player, that one moment, that, that, that one game uh, that made them think, you know what, I want to be a Warriors fan or I want to be a Wakefield Wildcat fan. So uh, I think helping the game in that respect has been awesome. You're wanting a Warrior show. Is it all, is it live? Is it, are, are, the, are the players in the um, studio with you or, or is it on Zoom? Or... It's both. It, mm-hmm. it, it is both. So you're either in the studio with me um, or you're in the wall. Um, so if you go onto YouTube and have a look at that, once a Warrior, well, once once a warrior with Monty Beetham, you'll 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 see that. And um, what it is, it's 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 not live, and it, it's edited. Um, and then they throw in the footage afterwards. Uh, right. But it was on Sky TV, so it's it's absolutely brilliant. And um, you know, it'd be shown ten times throughout uh, the week. Um, but it also hits with the same sort of views um, as as some of the top rugby shows are there. I put I put up a post on my Facebook page of. Um, some of the montages, and it was Efeka uh, Paliasina who's played over there in Wakefoot and that. And that's that's gone over a million views um, just on the footage that he's had. And, I mean, that's had almost 3,000 shares. Um, it's absolutely crazy, but that's just the montage of him running and, and how he'd run back in the day for the Warriors. We know he did that for Wigan Warriors and that as well. He was an absolute beast of a man. What does the future hold for Monty Beetham? Um, well, not many people know back here, but um, I had an ambassador role with the uh, Warriors last year, which was pretty loose. It was myself, Kevin Campion, and Alan Goodsonbill that was doing it. Uh, it's going to be fleshed out a little bit more where I'll be probably doing 20 hours uh, with the club next year, working in some of the commercial areas, monetizing some of um, uh, the game day experiences, uh, working with sponsorship, but also being able to work with the players, uh, a bit of mentoring, a bit of defensive stuff, a bit of boxing, a bit of everything. So, you know, to think I started there as a 15-year-old lad um, on a scholarship and then, you know, 44 years old now, sort of going back in and doing a little bit more to help uh, the club that that I grew up loving and, and grew up at um, is, is pretty good. Still got the sky, still doing bits and pieces there. Founder of a company that's trying to help small business as well. Um, still still pretty ambitious, but when you get to my age and then you see other sort of people um, less fortunate or or are passing and really good people at, at, at young ages, you start also thinking about just filling that cup and, and not always going after uh, ambition and, 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 and excellence, but rather than what makes you feel good and what makes um, a difference and how you can impact and leave a, leave, leave a legacy more than anything else. Superb stuff, a great way to end, Monty. So, like you've mentioned yourself, you were at Wakefield for a very short period, but you made such an impact that the feedback that we get and the, and the chat that still goes on at Bellevue on game day when your name gets brought up is always positive. So thank you for, for giving us your time and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Lee. And one day I want to get back to Bellevue, man, sit down and then just sing in the stands of Huron. Yeah, you're more than welcome. And, and if I ever make my way over to New Zealand, I'd like to come to a Warriors game as well if you can get one out. All right, I've got you. I've got you. Do that. I've got you. Come over and um, I've got you. Like, like I said, I'm doing stuff within the club. So um, let me know, bro. Superb stuff. Excellent. Thank awesome, you. Awesome, man. Thank you very Thanks, much. Jamie. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Bye. mate. Don't go yet. Don't go yet. Thank you, everybody, for listening to episode 60 of the Wakefield Trinity Heritage Podcast. You can find us on podcasting platforms worldwide and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates. 
on the podcast. Massive thank you once again to my co-host, Lee Robinson. Thank you to Monty Beetham once more. And I've been Jamie Robinson, and we will catch you all down the road. Hi, it's Cammy Tris Gamara. You have been listening to the Trinity Heritage Podcast with Jamie and Lee Robinson. It's unbelievable.